Well, if you would, would you please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 will be our text this morning. So think about the children singing at uh, Christmas carols and cookies and even the rehearsal they had this morning. I'm reminded about uh, just the sweetness of children and some of the conversations you can have with them when they're really young, asking them questions about life and what do they think and what do they observe. And, uh, you know, one of the things that you can ask children, that's it, can be an entertaining and sometimes enlightening and encouraging reaction can be asking children, who do they think God is? And all kinds of people throughout society have asked children this, from journalists and comedians to artists and pastors have asked children, who do they think God is? Some of the answers include, one nine-year-old said, God has big hands because the song says He's got the whole world in His hands. Kind of makes sense if you think about it, give that nine-year-old credit. Another nine-year-old named Lauren said, I imagine He is very tall. A seven-year-old Jackson said, I call God when I need help with things, but not my homework, because my mom says I have to do that myself. (laughs) That's a seven-year-old integrity right there. Brandon said, God is like an apple. Apples look good on the outside and on the inside. Ten-year-old Justin says, I think he has a beard. He is not that old. He lives in heaven, and Jesus is his son. Like, well, a few things there are true. Ten-year-old Ashley said, God is like a never-ending story that you want to read again and again. When I hear about Him, I want to know more. Although I can't see Him, I feel Him. He is perfect and pure. I know that He has felt pain and has suffered greatly to take away my sins. That Ashley's got good Christian parents who've been doing family devotions. If you're here today, Ashley, can you come help me later? Whether it's the children in our homes or the men and women on the streets, if you ask people questions about God, what they imagine God is like, you will get a variety of answers. Those answers are kind of an amalgamation of what they would like God to be like and maybe what they've heard secondhand from others that they think God has been told them to be like often distorted and inaccurate, certainly often incomplete representations of who God is. But the good news is God not only creates, of which we see with our own eyes, He also communicates, which we can read and hear with our own ears. Listen to what Numbers chapter 23 verse 19 says, God is not man that He should lie, or a son of man that He should change His mind. Has He said and will He not do it? Or has He spoken and we will not fulfill it? Later on, the prophet Isaiah would say in chapter 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, referring to the Lord, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As for the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Well, our goal this morning, ladies and gentlemen, is to make sure that our thoughts align with God's thoughts, that our views of who God is actually align with what God's Word says. And there's no greater person to learn from than the Son of God Himself. Matthew 11 is our text this morning. We'll be specifically in verses 25 to 30 
as we work our way through these verses together, there's going to be these three grand truths about God, three grand truths about God. We want to see it. We're going to come at us one after the other with increasing detail. First of all, in verses 25 and 26, God is gracious. Read with me as Jesus says in verse 25 and 26, or as He says rather, at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, admittedly, we're all parachuting into Matthew 11. You're like, what in the world are we talking about here? Matthew 11, chapter 1, uh, Matthew 11, rather, verse 1, speaks about how Jesus has been discipling His disciples, but now He starts to deal with some other people, dealing with the crowd. He's in different places, and the original conversation begins, eventually it's one with John the Baptist's disciples. John the Baptist is in prison, the disciples are coming, and they're like, hey, we want to know, are you really the one? Are you really who we thought you were to be? And then later on in chapter 11, there continues to be this conversation, and it says in verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, because he goes on to speak about this generation, and he gets into really this greater problem of what we can see and how they, create, they make these accusations about John the Baptist, and then later on, the accusations about Jesus Himself in verse 19. But then He has strong words in verses 20 to 24. It says in verse 20, He began to denounce the cities where most of His mighty works had been done because they did not repent. goes into a series of woes. Woes is like biblical euphemism for cursed are you, damned are you. Upon you will come judgment for you have rejected what God has revealed. Why then do we say our first grand truth then that God is gracious? Well, because if you go back to verse 25, it's how Jesus begins, what He says. It's a prayer. I thank you, Father. So, God the Son is talking to God the Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Not just a declaration of relationship, but also of deity And then he says that you've hidden these things. What are these things he's talking about? What's talking about is this the reality of the presence of the kingdom of God. Who Jesus Christ is. He is the king, inaugurating a kingdom on all those who subject themselves to him as citizens of his kingdom become exactly that, citizens of his kingdom. And the very people you would expect to believe him reject him. And the last group of people you think would accept him actually do. Jesus says this is a gracious work of God. In fact, that's actually what it says at the very end there, verse 26. Such was your gracious will. And it has this sort of contrast, this idea of wise and understanding. What's going on here in the text? Well, from the wise understanding to then this contrast of little children. Well, the wise understanding is really a reference to the town's earlier reference in verses 20 to 24. It's religious people who seemingly had learned everything there is to learn, had memorized everything there is to memorize, they had read everything there was to read. They had known everything there was to know, and they still did not see what was right in front of them. In fact, earlier on, 
If you go back to verse 25, or excuse me, uh, verse 20, when Jesus says, he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. This reference later that Jesus would give in verse 25 of being wise and understanding is really just sarcasm. The Jewish leaders who were identified as wise and understanding, wise in the world's eyes, but are unrepentant and stubbornly refuse to accept the gospel. Jesus would later say in Matthew chapter 18, verses 3 and 4, He says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So here's just a point of clarity that I want to make sure no one is left behind in understanding here this morning. For those of you who perhaps are here as supportive spouses, coming to church this morning with your spouse as a gesture of kindness and being kind to them in your marriage. For those of you as children, perhaps being submissive as children, being brought here against your better judgment and will. Or perhaps just coming as a friend or a first-timer who knows nobody here and you're still not clear on where you are in the walk with the Lord. If you can think of it like this, this is a room full of children. This is a room full of people who have recognized that the way to have peace with God is not through strength and might, intellect and wisdom, at least by the world's standards, it's one of ironic submission and dependence and surrender. Friend, for some of you who perhaps have not yet submitted your life to Christ, the reason for that is simply this. You're too busy being wise in your own eyes to submit yourself to otherwise the clear, undeniable revelation of the Son of God. And yet that's what he says here in the text about the significance of God's gracious, that he reveals it to the, to the children. Now, what's he saying here? This does not mean that all the wise are lost and all the children are saved. It means that the knowledge of God does not depend on human wisdom and education. Recently, I listened to a series of sermons that were given to a bunch of non-Christians to interact with this non-Christian audience about the plausibility of Christianity and comparing it to other world religions as well as against secularism, which is essentially rooted in atheism. And I was struck by how seemingly successful the arguments were like really sort of laying out at an intellectual, linear level, just sort of comparing ideologies, and then using various topics of interest, topics of hope, topics of peace, topics of justice, topics of, of satisfaction, and saying, how in these sort of desire for these things can you find these things satisfied in these various other ways and other beliefs? And the answer is sort of undeniable, you just can't. But what was also striking to me is, it's not simply a matter of just sort of talking someone into the kingdom of heaven. Now, sure, Romans 10 says faith comes by hearing the word of Christ, but for a person to respond as God gives life, a person responds in humble submission to surrender their life to Christ. And this idea of a child is this imagery of one who is dependent. Wise and clever people will sum up the best of human achievers but it's not by the use of gifts or presence in the kingdom that somehow makes them come in. It's only through dependency. 
Self-sufficiency only can mean one comes to trust in themselves, not in God for salvation. How significant it is that we see God is a loving God to not put the cookies on the top shelf. Only the intellectually tallest and most successful and prominent can reach those. But God puts cookies on the bottom shelf, accessible and attainable to all those who would repent and trust in Christ. How gracious of God. How kind of God to present it. What do we learn from this? Friend, we praise God. We thank God for being so gracious. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven. I mean, this is God the Son talking to God the Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians, the church is largely filled up with the unimpressive. If you feel unimpressive, you're at home. If you feel impressive, impressive, well, then you just need to be humbled. Because anything you have is a gift from the Lord. There's nothing in you that's not from God. Second grand truth of God, not only is God gracious, secondly, God is mysterious. He is mysterious. Jesus continues in verse 27. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. Like, well, that seems like a closed loop. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Now, these verses are a powerful affirmation of the mystery of divine sovereignty over the affairs of men. I mean, in verse 27, Christ is claiming that the tax, the task of executing the divine will has been committed to Him. He is here to do the Father's will, a claim that would be utterly blasphemous if Jesus Himself was anything less than the sovereign God Himself, which we know in the understanding of the Trinity, He is. Three persons, one essence, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. It's also worth noting that the disciples who had responded to His call did not yet themselves have a full understanding of His person. It was true of them too that they did not really know Him fully, especially the idea of knowing the Father through Him. Later on in Matthew 16, Jesus is asking His disciples, who do men say that I am? And they give a, a list of answers. Some say you're Elijah, some say you're others. He says, but who do you say that I am? And the star of the show, Peter, shows up. He says, well, you're the Son of God. Like, okay, is that the exception of the rule? Like, he's smart? No, Jesus says to Peter, correct, my Father has revealed that to you. Ideas, even the understanding of knowing who God is, is through the revelation of God of Himself to us. Knowing who God the Father is only to know Him through the Son, to knowing through the Son is only to God the Son reveals Himself to us. Why is this important? Why is the mystery of God important? Because, friends, part of the pathway to your humility as a Christian is to recognize you cannot explain everything there is about God 
But because you can't explain it does not mean it's true, not true, rather. I mean, I think we understand that, right? There's like a ton of things in life that we do not personally know, but we trust in. We trust that the one who knows those things has made those things and is honestly quite competent in what they've done. I mean, the, the idea of the engineering behind an automobile, have you considered how the combustible engine works? What's actually happening with gasoline that you're sitting on top of? I have very few people here. I imagine there's some smart people here, but there's probably very few people here outside of the smart people who actually understand the full working details. And yet you entrust yourself that you're putting your key into ignition and anything is not going to blow up on you. And yet it's got a controlled explosion that's propelling it forward when it drives. And yet we trust it. It's a mystery to us, but we trust it. Now this is a mechanical engine of parts and pieces of metal made by fellow fallen sinners like us, which should be in some ways encouraging and concerning. (laughs) But God who creates, who provides, who saves, His work is mysterious, but is nevertheless worthy of our trust of Him, who also we otherwise submit our life to. Third, and now with more detail, God is not only gracious, God is not only mysterious, He is also merciful. He is merciful. Come to now verses 28 through 30, what Jesus says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What's interesting is that you go from the mystery of verse 27 to the clarity of verse 28. No one knows the Father except the Son, anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And then here comes the invitation, verse 28. Come to me. Come to me. The invitation has been repeatedly extended. Even in this very chapter, the disciples of John being extended. The cities were refused to repent and respond, and therefore they were rejected. But we come to this passage, this sort of cluster of verses, these three verses, and we come to we need to answer three questions in light of these three verses here. First of all, who qualifies for this invitation? Who qualifies for this invitation? You know, you think about sports as, a, as an exercise of competition. We're seeing right now, for example, the World Cup. Just by a show of hands, I'm curious. How many of you are watching the World Cup? Okay, put your hands back down. Uh, how many of you are watching the World Cup who don't normally ever watch soccer? Yeah, I, yeah, huh? If I said in Miami, how many of you watching the World Cup? Probably like most of the rooms are like raising their hand. So the idea is, as you understand, for those of you who are probably not watching World Cup, which is not many of you, there's this process of elimination, Final Four. How many of you watch Final Four basketball? Okay, more of you. How many of you understand sports? <laughs> we'll just start there. How many of you know what a ball is? <laughs> start there. Okay, so we'll start baseline, baseline understanding. You're like, are we allowed to raise our hand in church? Maybe that's what I'm throwing you off. It's like revival's altar call. What's happening right now? (laughs) 
You're not charismatic if you raise your hand, but I preach your ass to you. It's okay. Some of you get really nervous right now. You're like, I'm not, I'm not, my mama said, don't raise my hand in church. So if I may, for a moment of your time to bring us all on the same page, when you play sports, you often enter into end-of-the-season competitions, whereas the process of continuing to rule out who actually qualifies to make it to the final game. And it's completely based on your performance. Doesn't matter how good-looking you are, doesn't matter if your mom's in the stand, doesn't matter if your dad brought the best cupcakes, obviously referring to kids, doesn't matter work with their professionals, that's weird. It all comes down, doesn't matter who's got the best soccer cleats, the best basketball shoes, it all comes down to how well can you perform to qualify. Ironically, with the Lord, it's like the exact opposite. The more you feel like you are disqualified and cannot qualify, that you cannot perform for God, the more you're like, well, that makes you perfectly eligible. He says to those who are heavy laden and burdened, this is referring to the immediate context of those oppressed by the burden of religious legalism imposed on the people by scribes and Pharisees. But the the wider application is that Jesus is providing rest for your souls. It's not rest from religious oppressive leadership alone, it's rest for your souls. The reality is those who qualify for this invitation are those who are burdened by sin. There's not a person in this room who's not been and is not at some point understanding the burden of sin. You can deny it. You can dismiss it. You can try to distract yourself from it, but it is always present tapping you on the shoulder, if not overwhelmingly tackling you to the ground. Sin is a burden which separates you from God, Isaiah 59. It has terrible side effects because of it. You, you lack inner peace, and your conscience is destroying you in Isaiah 48, burdened with anxiety and depression and fear and doubt. Meaninglessness of other answers are given to you and other pursuits that you try to pursue, and yet it's all simply a distraction from the reality that sin is overwhelming. To speak honestly, Some people struggle in the church not because of the sins that they've committed, but because of the sins that others have committed against them. For those of you who have not been a part of uh, this morning's prayer time or yesterday morning's teaching on church planting, you have not heard what what I shared then, and I'll just share it again by way of uh, review for those who had. One of the biggest challenges that we have at Grace Church amongst a lot of things that we have, challenges at Grace Church, the Lord's blessing greatly, and people are coming to faith in Christ, is the amount of people in our church that are victims of physical and sexual abuse, um, both men and women. It's the, it's the sin that no one talks about, but so many have struggled with. And they're overwhelmed with the burden of it. It distorts how they view relationships around them, how they view God even being referred to as a heavenly father, idea of trust, idea of physical intimacy, 
in close proximity even to friendships, it distorts. And seemingly because of nothing they have done, but because of what others have done to them. But in the perversity of how Satan dogpiles that way of thinking is they begin to think it's something that I did that deserved this to be done to me. I said I'd speak to you honestly. I mean to speak to you honestly not just about Miami. I mean to speak to you honestly about Naples. I would be wrong to think that problem sits over there in that city, in that room, but not in this city and in this room. For those of you who have gone through that, I want to say with sincerity, I am so very sorry. It's quite likely some of you have never spoken of it yet to a person a day in your life. And others of you have, but don't know that it has helped yet. A problem for both men and for women. And that burden is so great that you've been trying to walk around life carrying it. In fact, almost becoming like a label. It's who you are. Fred, I mean to speak to you from the Word of God to tell you that is not true. That is not who you are. And it's not who God has you to be. And the hope that is possible in Christ, the hope of restoration, the hope of being rescued, the hope of having peace, the hope of actually knowing joy, the hope of actually experiencing contentment and trust. The reality is, whether it's things done by us or things done to us, everyone is qualified in this invitation. But sadly, not everybody responds to this invitation. Others, perhaps, not because of what they have had done to them, but because of what others have done, or they have done themselves, rather. They're too proud to admit their position, too proud to admit their problem. The stubbornness of humanity's sinful rebellion is such that without a sovereignly bestowed spiritual awakening, all sinners would refuse to acknowledge the depth of their condition. No one would come. That's why Jesus says in verse 27, our salvation is the sovereign work of God. But the truth of divine grace in verse 27 is not incompatible with the free offer to call those to respond in verse 28 to 30. So who qualifies all those burdened by sin? The second question we have to answer is, what is he offering? What is Jesus offering? Verse 28, he says, I will give you rest. (laughs) Rest. Do you understand in an agricultural society without refrigeration, no apps and weather forecasts, no bank accounts and savings, If I don't work today, I starve tomorrow. If I don't fish today, my family doesn't eat tomorrow. I was born to work until I die, and then I die. I don't know of rest. 
And yet you, this Jewish rabbi teacher, speak of me of rest as if it's accessible, as if it's attainable. I live out of my insecurity of tomorrow's provision. The problem today is a lot of people are not working from a position of economic unrest and instability. They're working from a place of personal insecurity and lack of security of their identity. They do what they do to secure who they are, to impress those they want to impress, to get validation from others that they want to. And Jesus is saying, you don't need to do that. Jesus is offering rest for your souls, souls burdened by sin and its guilt. He's offering a removal of the guilt of sin. Though his, through His blood, Jesus frees us from the condemnation of sin. He is offering rest from the side effects of sin, the anxiety and depression and fear and the doubt. He's lived long enough. You and I have lived long enough to understand the, the burden of sin. It's not easy to lay aside. As Hebrews 12 says, it so easily entangles us like a python wrapping itself around our legs. I know the Everglades are right there, so. Jesus offers to remove anxiety. He offers peace to calm the troubled heart, removing fear to offering love which casts out fear from 1 John 4, a love which passes all knowledge according to Ephesians 3. Jesus is offering rest. You know what a lot of people need? A sabbatical from the treadmill of constant movement and anxiety. I just want to say to those of you who are young moms, you're enough. You're enough. One of the most stressful things is for a young woman, a woman of any age, to have children and feel like she's not doing enough. And social media only fuels that even more. And no matter what you do, somebody else seemingly is doing it better. They're educating better, they're parenting better, they're bathing better, they're dressing better. They're hugging better. They're singing better. They smile better. They just are better. And this nagging feeling is that you're just a bad mom. That's just not true. And it's not me trying to give you a pep talk. It's me trying to tell you that Jesus loves you not because you are better and pledged to be even better. Jesus loves you because your faith is in Him. And the belief that what he's given you and the gift of the children he's given you is a stewardship of an offering to him. It was never about you being the perfect parent. And it's not unique to just young moms. It's true to every one of us. The, the working man in his blue-collar or white-collar job and how he has to continue to work hard at what he does. The idea of rest seems like a mythological reality only to then go on vacation to be reminded that vacation will come to an end to get back to work. This idea of rest can be a myth. 
something valued but yet rarely ever seen. And yet Jesus is saying that the rest is far deeper than physical. It is free from the burden of sin, whose burden is heavy laden, who are laboring. Third question, the first one who qualifies for the invitation, the second one is what is he offering? The third one is what is he like? What is he like? Verse 29, he tells us, he is gentle and lowly. He is patient and kind. He is the Savior of all men. In verse 29, he uses this term yoke. It's referring to this wooden frame that joined two animals, usually oxen, together for pulling heavy loads. It would be a a metaphor of this idea of subjection to another. A, A common metaphor in Judaism was for the law. The Pharisaic interpretation of the law with this extensive list of proscriptions had become a crushing burden for anybody who seemingly wanted to have a walk with God. It was like, more of what you do, more of what you do, more of what you do, more of what you do. And if we're not careful, in the church today, we can undermine the sufficiency of Christ and what He has done by not making the gospel clear that just more of what you need to do read more, pray more, sing more, witness more, love more, hospitality more, just continue to do more. But the problem, friends, if you're, if you're not careful and those are not fueled by the gospel, they'll become a heavy load of the law, heavy load of the law. The pharisaical way of treating the law of God was to continue to add to it as if your identity and security with God was based upon what you did. But Jesus His yoke of discipleship, on the other hand, brings rest through simple faith in Him. John chapter 6, verse 35 through 37, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Now, some of you might think, Eric, this is great for the average person, but you don't know me. I'm the small print that's in every invitation and extension given coming to our neighborhood doors of offers and opportunities. I'm the small print person that this does not apply to. You don't know what I've done. You know what I say to that? You're right. I don't. I don't. But God does. There's no small print in the text. It's an invitation given to everyone. A book that's ministered to many in the last couple of years, Gentle and Lowly, Day Nortland writes, we cannot present a reason for Christ to finally close off his heart to his own sheep. No such reason exists. Every friend has a limit. If we offend enough, if relationship gets damaged enough, if we betray enough times, we are what? Cast out. The walls go up. 
With Christ, our sins and weaknesses are the very resume items that qualify us to approach Him. Nothing but coming to Him is required. First at conversion, and then a thousand times thereafter until we are with Him upon death. Well-known Baptist preacher of England of the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon, said it like this, if you cannot come with a broken heart, come for a broken heart. If you cannot come with faith, come for faith. If you cannot come repenting, come and ask the Lord to give you repentance. Come empty-handed, bankrupt, ruined, condemned, and you will find rest. Why is it so significant? It's significant because there's as many people are sitting in here who need to hear this. There's exponentially more people outside of this room that need to hear this. They're on a treadmill of society, some of them seemingly retired, others still working endlessly and finding no rest. I don't know how many of you like to run. My wife hates running. I somewhat love running. But I do think there's a tremendous difference in running on a treadmill versus going for a run around the neighborhood. The treadmill, in my mind, no offense to those of you who are committed to the treadmill, I think, first of all, it's like cheating. Like, the road comes to you. You just have to lift your feet up. Like, this isn't how that works. But you go outside, that road's going to stay there. You've got to move. Well, you run on a treadmill, right? You can run on a treadmill for an hour. You know how much ground you've covered? I mean, about like four feet. You pretty much saw nothing for an hour. Nothing. You go outside, though, and you go for a run, you saw all kinds of things, all kinds of people. There are people on the treadmill in life that are going endlessly fast for an endless amount of time covering no distance at all. Only getting off to have nothing to show for it and are exhausted for it. And Jesus is saying, I see you and I invite you to come to me and find rest for your soul. Friends, for you this morning, I want you to find rest in Christ. And then like a beggar who has found bread... I want you to go find other starving people to tell them where you found bread from. I say that by no means to put a a burden upon your conscience, a law to bind you with. I say that to simply extend the same invitation to you that you would then extend to others about the opportunity to find rest. Do you understand as we're about to have the Lord's Supper together, the significance of what it signifies? A body broken, a blood shed so that you and I could have rest, that we could have peace with God, that our sins would be atoned for. And Christ was so committed to that invitation that He extended in Matthew 11, that He would then lay down His life for you and for me. 
There's no greater love than one can show than one who would lay down his life for you. That's exactly what God has done. So God is gracious, God is merciful, God is mysterious. God is better than we could have ever imagined as children or adults, extending invitation greater than we could ever have hoped for. My hope this morning is that you would respond to that invitation personally and finding your hope in Christ and resting there that you are enough through faith in Christ, all of the righteousness of Christ given to you, and that you in turn would love others to extend that same invitation who will not come to this church by your invitation. But they would come to a coffee shop with you by invitation. They would come to your dining room table for a dinner invite by invitation. And they would hear from you what you've heard from another. There is a place to find rest. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that your word would do its work. I mean, I'm a guest preacher, pastoring a different people in a different city, fellow brother with these brothers and sisters here. And yet your word is profoundly powerful, always relevant, always needed. God, I pray that you would, Holy Spirit, minister to each person where it is needed. To the proud and obstinate, Lord, would you do a work in their heart to bring them to surrender. Would conviction overwhelm them and then finally take off the yoke of sin and put on the yoke of Christ and find rest. For those who feel cast away, unloved, discouraged and defeated, who sit here politely, dressed and behaving accordingly, but feel so distant from anybody around them. God, would you have them to know that they're not distant from you, and therefore they're not distant from those around them. That this is a family of redeemed sinners who are being transformed day by day into the likeness of Christ your Son. That there is hope. God, would you do a work in Faith Church as you've already done? It's remarkable to see their love for one another, their love for you. But Father, would you protect them from the evil one who would seek to distract them or divide them? Would you protect their leadership from 
disunity? But would they prefer each other more important than themselves? Loving one another, serving one another, and would that example between them as leaders be imitated by those that they lead? Would they herald the truth of your word with conviction and compassion? Being like you, Jesus, full of grace and truth. Would you use them to do a work greatly, be it in Sweden or Togo or Miami or China, here in Naples? Would their testimony of faithfulness be like the Thessalonians into the region and beyond? Their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope. Would you do this work in them? It would certainly be for their good, but ultimately for the praise of your glorious grace. Would they live well so they can die well, giving their lives the only thing that matters? Would the children learn and see and do the same? as well as their grandchildren and the generations to come until, Lord, you return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.